Welcome to Bill Bronchick's Real Estate Investing Podcast. Mr. Bronchick is an attorney, best-selling author, and a real estate investor with 25 years' experience. For more information and free articles and videos, visit his website at www.legalwiz.com. So we're going to talk about landlord legal liabilities and laws that you need to be concerned with if you are a landlord. And one of them is not really COVID. <laughs> so putting that aside, uh, let's go into the cat- different categories. I've had eight different categories of landlord liabilities and things you need to be aware of. So the first, the most obvious one that people are concerned with, and the most common one is is uh, personal injury. Personal injury to a tenant, personal injury to a guest of a tenant. There's even liability to some extent to trespassers. Um, you know, if you have a pool and someone hops the fence and drowns in the pool, yes, you do have liability if you, that fence was inadequate. Um, those are what's called attractive nuisances. Under the law, there's something called an attractive nuisance, which is something that you know is likely to attract children and is dangerous. So that would include swing sets, pools, trampolines, and and especially in the case of pools, I don't, I'm not aware of any place in this country that doesn't have an ordinance that says if you have a pool, you have to have a certain type and height and and, and quality of fence to, to keep you know children out who or who might trespass. Um, so you do have liability even to trespassers in some cases. Um, one of the, I mean, the obvious things are um, things that you don't fix, that you neglect, that you knowingly neglect, that the tenant tells you about, and then they get injured. You know, clear-cut case of liability for negligence. But you also have a duty to disclose what are known as latent defects. Latent defects. What does that mean? Well, what's the opposite of latent? Latent, the opposite is obvious. So if someone um, is going to rent your apartment and um, it's the winter time, and they notice that there's um, ice collecting on the walkway up to the house. If it's the tenant's responsibility to maintain that, and the tenant can see it, and it's obvious, then it's not a latent defect. But if they were in the summertime renting the place, and they weren't aware, maybe it's their first winter in Colorado, um, or they came from Florida. So the way that the sloping of the house and the gutters are such that the water tends to collect in this one area by the front door or back door, and it tends to get slippery, that's not obvious in the summertime. That's a latent defect because you wouldn't know that um, unless it was in the middle of the winter, unless you disclosed that. Um, if you, for example, uh, had a leak, and you fix the, you know, in a bathroom or something like that, and you fixed it, and you never checked for mold, and then mold grew inside. How would anyone know that without opening up the wall? Tenant's not going to tear open the walls or have a property inspector do that. So that's a latent defect. So things that you know or reasonably should know that are not obvious should be disclosed. Now, when you're selling, we have disclosure forms, um, except in a few states. Uh, unless you use a realtor, you're not required to use that disclosure form. A lot of people don't realize that, but when um, you're a realtor and you're using the realtor contract, there's something that says you have to fill out a disclosure form, and there's a long list of 
30 or 40 items uh, specific about the property that you have to say, you know, I, uh, there was problems, there was no problems, or I don't know, uh, or it was remedied. So those are, you know, clear disclosures, and failure to disclose on that is a non-disclosure issue, which could lead to liability if someone gets injured, you know, after a sale. But as a landlord, you're not required to give a tenant one of those things. So you have to be careful about uh, disclosing latent defects that, again, may not be obvious. I had a particular property that was sort of a and not really legal two-family. It was a huge townhome, and it had a separate detached garage. And above the garage was an apartment. And the only way up to the apartment was a spiral staircase, which was made of metal. And again, in the summertime, you know, it's a little tight to get up this little winding staircase, but it was doable. But in the wintertime, it's made of metal. It would get slippery. So I would have a tenant sign an acknowledgement if I rented it in the summer saying, hey, in the winter, you know, I'm not going to maintain this thing because, you know, if it snows overnight, I can't get there at six in the morning. If you have to go to work at seven, um, you understand and acknowledge that this is slippery and dangerous and you accept that risk. Uh, so the way to get around a latent defect or any kind of defect is an assumption of the risk. So having uh, when you go to a ski resort, there are risks. You can get hit by another skier. You can catch your ski on a rock. You could hit a tree. I mean, all those things are, are assumed risks when you go because your ticket says on it that you have a right to ski here today, but it says on the back you assume the risk of all these things. So you can't sue the ski resort unless they were grossly or intentionally, you know, something intentional or grossly negligent. You can't sue the ski resort because you assumed that risk. So assuming the risk is is important uh, to getting around things that maybe are unfixable, that are that can be a little dangerous, that aren't obvious, is to have the tenant sign an assumption of risk form or an acknowledgement in their lease that there are certain things, A, B, C, D. You know, for example, um, if you have a property that backs up to open space, is it possible that a cougar could eat your dog or you or a bear? Yes. Now, that's a latent defect because you don't know that <laughs> unless you see them in the backyard when you rent the place. Should you have the tenant sign something? I assume the risk of wild animals. Um, not a bad idea. Not a bad idea. Right? Um, another thing, a liability that comes up a lot is having tenants do the work. Um, a lot of landlords are lazy about repairs and if the tenant is handy they'll say okay you fix it and just um you know give me the bill for the materials or um you can hire someone and just send me the invoice well if that work was not done properly or if the tenant did the work themselves and did it wrong you could be in trouble if they get injured by that because they were not qualified to do the work and you shouldn't have let them do the work um, then there's also issues of, you know, if they can, if they do work for you all the time, like a, a resident manager, uh, a lot of people who have small apartment buildings have one person who lives in a unit that in exchange for rent fixes all the stuff around the place and deals with the tenants and maybe collects rent. Well, you know, that's an employee. That's an employee. And you could be held liable for the misdeeds that they have because technically they're your employee, even though they're not on your books as an employee, you're paying them free rent 
in exchange for work. That is the definition of employment. Maybe they're not a full-time employee. They could be a part-time employee. And then the last thing, you know, we, a lot of people carry insurance, which is a good thing to carry. Everyone should carry enough insurance for the worst-case scenario. And the worst-case scenario, obviously, is someone unfortunately dying or being severely injured from, I don't know, a fire, um, lead paint, um, an accident of some kind, a deck collapsing. You know, you, you, there's a million things you probably can't think of. Um, insurance is not for the, for the ones you can think of. It's for the million reasons you can't think of. And most people run around with 300000 in liability coverage, which is woefully inadequate. You think someone's life is worth $300,000 to a jury? That is, that is woefully inadequate. So if you do get a policy, ask the, the insurance agent, how much liability coverage do I have for this? And if they, you know, most of them are trying to quote cheap, so they're going to quote you a basic, you know, one hundred, two hundred, three hundred, max five hundred thousand dollars in liability coverage, which is not enough. Now, if they won't sell you more, some insurance companies won't sell you more than five hundred thousand. You can get an umbrella policy. So, if you have five properties and each with five hundred thousand in liability coverage, you can buy an umbrella that starts at five million and uh, excuse me, five hundred thousand and one dollar up to let's say two million, and that's very cheap to buy. I mean, that would be like six hundred dollars a year because the chances of something catastrophic happening are infinitesimally small. That's why the policy is so cheap. Most claims are under a hundred thousand or even under fifty thousand. Um, that's why your regular policy is much more expensive. But is it worth having an extra two million in cover, a million five or two million in coverage for six hundred or seven hundred dollars a year? You better believe it's worth it. Absolutely worth it. And if you have your personal home, your car, and your rentals with the same insurance company, they'll cover all of it. So if you have a car accident or your kids have a car accident and you only have a half million in coverage, you get an extra two million in in uh, an umbrella. If your home only has 300000 now you have $2.3 million, and it's all covered under the umbrella. Now, uh, umbrellas are great, but understand, don't get into a false sense of um, – lulled into a false sense of security with an umbrella. An umbrella does not cover more items, more things, more events, just more money. So if your primary policy doesn't cover the claim, neither does the umbrella. So, for example – you know, ordinary negligence would be covered by a policy, and so would the umbrella policy covered if it was a big number. But the problem is there are many circumstances and activities that are not covered by insurance, just not covered by insurance. You can better believe that someone getting sick from COVID because you didn't clean your apartment, not, not that they could ever prove that, but if they could to a jury, um, you better believe that's not going to be covered by your policy. Um, and there's lots of things that aren't covered by your policy. But instead of, I'm not going to go into a long diatribe of what's covered and what's not covered, the most common reason that people get denied coverage is failing to report an incident that later leads to a lawsuit. Because your insurance policy says in it, if anything happens, any incident that might later lead to a claim, you have a duty to promptly notify us. Now, when you get your renewal, they ask you, did anything happen in the last year that we need to know about? before we renew your policy. Most people say no, even if something did happen. Why? Because they're afraid their rates are going to go up and they figure, well, it wasn't a big deal. Someone wasn't really injured that badly. The neighbor's kid was playing on 
um, the trampoline and broke her leg, but we're friends and we took her to the hospital and she's fine. You know, three years later, or actually in the case of a child, a child has till they're 18 to sue plus the statute of limitations for negligence, which in, is anywhere from three to six years, depending on what state you're in. So, you know, they can sue you 10 years later for that. And your insurance company says, why didn't you report this? We're not covering it. We're not covering it at all. Neither does your umbrella cover it because the primary policy doesn't cover it. So if anything happens, you're aware of anything that happens in terms of injury on a property of any kind, report it. I know your rates are going to go up. It's unfortunate. But the risk of a claim later is too great. I had a client who had a rental, a fourplex. One of the tenants had a fridge hooked up to a water line for the ice maker, pulled it out to clean it, snapped the line, didn't realize it, water collected. He walked back in the kitchen an hour later, slipped and fell and broke his leg. Okay. My client waited nine months before reporting that to his insurance company because he got a, a letter from a lawyer representing the tenant. And the insurance company initially denied the claim. He had to you know, hire a lawyer and fight the insurance company saying, no, nine months is not an unreasonable time. You need to cover this. And eventually they hemmed and hawed, but they did cover it. But just goes to show you, you know, insurance companies are really good at collecting premiums and denying claims. So um, be aware of incidences. That's, that's the easiest way for an insurance company to deny a claim is to say, you didn't report this incident that later led to a lawsuit. All right. So that's enough of that for my soapbox on that one. Let's go into the next thing, which is uh, independent contractors. So if you hire contractors to do work on your rentals, you got to be aware of, one, liability. If they do something wrong and you hired them, most likely you're going to be held liable. So you got to make sure they have insurance. Um, in terms of reporting, to the IRS, you're supposed to give 1099s for any non-corporate entity or person you paid more than $600 in a 12-month calendar tax year. So, you know, Joe Handyman LLC did $4,000 worth of work. Do you have to give him a 1099? Well, that depends. Does that LLC report as a corporation? If it does, then you don't. I said corporation. I didn't say corporate entity. An LLC, which is just like Joe Handyman owns it and is disregarded for tax purposes, which means he reports as a Schedule C on his taxes, is not exempt from 1099 reporting. So you've got to give that person a 1099, and you should, before you pay, have them fill out a uh, W-9 form with their tax ID number and all that, and determine whether or not you have to give them a 1099 because it's, you know, try chasing them down at the end of the year when you want to do taxes. Good luck. Okay. If, if you hire someone to do handyman work, like I, the, one of the examples I mentioned was work in exchange for rent, either they're an employee or they're an independent contractor, but you don't straddle that line make them one or the other. So if they're an independent contractor, then you have an agreement that says in exchange for rent, $900 worth a month or $1,500 worth a month, you're going to do the following things for me. I'm not going to supervise your hours. I am not going to tell you when to do it. You're not going to use my tools. I am not going to pay you by the hour. 
you are an independent contractor and you have a duty to report on your own that income. Okay? So that's clearly making them an independent contractor. Because if you don't, then the IRS or more likely the State Department of, of Labor and Unemployment, maybe, if they apply for unemployment, which people often do on uh, as independent contractors, then they're going to say, well, this person was your part-time employee. And if they were injured and you don't have unemployment insurance, ooh, that's unfortunate. Or liability insurance, you know, disability insurance, or, um, you know, you can get into big trouble with that. So be careful. If, you're, if you think it looks like they're an employee, if you have a handyman who does work for you regularly, you pay him by the hour, you tell him when to show up and when to leave, they use your tools and materials, that looks a lot like an employee. Just put them on the payroll. And a lot of people avoid payroll because they think it's a pain, and it is a pain. But the payroll services that are out there, you know, 30 to 40 bucks a month, are not difficult at all. They do everything. They follow all the forms. You got to give them a W-2. You got to withhold. You have to have workers' comp insurance. Yeah, you have to have all those things. But if you have multiple people working for you, whether they're a bookkeeper or a painter or a tenant in exchange for rent, um, make sure that you either have an independent contractor agreement and you make it clear that they're an independent contractor or you make them an employee. Okay, don't get in the fuzzy area because you get in trouble. And especially the State Department of Labor, not just liability. The Department of Labor is really vicious about this. They'll go through your books for three years and ask you about every check you wrote to anyone more than $600. Why, who, what was this for, what, you know, and try to make them an employee. How do you think I know that, by the way? <laughs> three times I've been audited by the State Department of, uh, State Department of Labor. Okay. The next topic. Um, discrimination and the American with Disabilities Act. We could spend a lot of time on this, but I don't want to spend forever. So let me go over the highlights. Um, it gets a little tricky. People know the obvious ones usually um, by race, by national origin, by sex. Um, you're not supposed to discriminate. Okay. Uh, most people know that, but there's some other ones that people don't know, like, Familial status. You're like, I don't want single people. I want married people because they're more reliable. You can't do that. Familial status is a protected class. Also, if they have kids or not kids, marital status and familial status are two different things. Marital status is married and unmarried. Familial status is whether they have kids or no kids or how many kids they have. So let's say you decide, well, I'm going to rent to this family because I don't want you know seven kids in my two-bedroom apartment. You can't do that. Now, it gets a little tricky because local code in your jurisdiction might say no more than X amount of people per bedroom can live in this unit, and the federal law says you can't discriminate based on the number of children. Which one do you go by? It's not an easy answer. Uh, personally, uh, unless you think it's going to be a real you know, physical danger, um, not just a money drain, I would go with the federal law because that's scarier than the local, you know, uh, housing department coming over and saying you have to, or, or code enforcement saying you have too many people living here. Um, so there's federal regulations of protected classes of people. Then there are state. Then there are city. And each one gets more and more restrictive. So, for example, in the, in the city of New York, people didn't want to rent to lawyers. And I don't blame them. 
<laughs> try to evict a lawyer. They'll tie you up in court for a year. Uh, so the city of city bar of New York, you know, petitioned the legislature to say uh, in the city, uh, say, oh, okay, we want uh, something in the law that says in the city of New York you can't discriminate by someone's profession. Um, so be aware of there are local things, especially if you're in a weird place like Boulder or, you know, Austin, Texas or San Francisco or Seattle. I'm sure they've got all kinds of protected classes. Some states like California prohibits what's called arbitrary discrimination. Now, I don't think that's fair because what if I just met someone who was a tenant and said, this person's a jerk. I don't like them. I don't want to rent to them. Not because of any protected class that they're in, just because I don't like their attitude. They showed up late. They're obviously stoned. I could smell it on their breath, or they've been drinking. They didn't fill out the application completely, and they're jerky. They're not answering my questions to the way I like, and they have a bad attitude about everything. I don't want to rent to them, and as you shouldn't have to rent to them. But they might be that might be arbitrary discrimination unless you can identify identify specific things. So it's a good idea to have a written policy for your rentals if you manage them and have a, a, like a checklist of things you check, like, you know, was their application completely filled out? Do they make a certain amount of income? You know, three times rent or two times, you know, uh, income three times rent or income two and a half times rent, whatever your standard is. Uh, credit score. Um, did they lie on their application? Did they show up on time? How was their general demeanor? See, some of those things are specific numbers like FICO score, but some of them like, did they fill out the application completely or what was their demeanor or attitude? Those are subjective things. So if you have like a scoring system for each one, you could say, I don't want to rent to this person, but they also happen to be uh, single mother kids that belong to a certain class of protected, you know, race, gender, nationality, whatever. Um, and I don't want to be accused of discrimination. So I'm going to go through my checklist and say, well, I bounced them because they didn't fill out the application completely, or they said something I found out to be untrue and document that. Does that make sense? Also, the American with Disabilities Act, uh, which was well-intentioned, but very much abused, requires a landlord and now, now it's different for multifamily and single family single family it's not it's not that restrictive multifamily you have to have access issues you have to have um, um, handicap accessibility you may even have to have an elevator of a certain kind but single family houses usually are exempt from almost all of that all you're required to do as a landlord on single families to make what's called quote reasonable accommodations for a disability now what is a reasonable accommodation? Well, that's up to a judge or a jury, but let's, let's give you some examples. There was a case in Denver many years ago where it was an apartment building and someone had Tourette's syndrome. That's a disability. That's a mental disability. Okay? And they would scream curse words in the middle of the night. They couldn't control themselves. And the neighbors would constantly complain, and the landlord bounced them and said, I'm evicting you. You're disturbing all the other neighbors. And he sued. He lost. Because <laughs> is it reasonable for a landlord to make an accommodation for someone who has Tourette's, who screams and uh, destroys all, you know, the, the, the uh, uh, quiet enjoyment of the, of the neighboring tenants? Um, like, for example, let's give you a more concrete example. Uh, marijuana. 
let's say someone has a disability that requires them to have medical marijuana, which is legal in Colorado, and they may have a prescription from, for, for medical marijuana. Does that mean you have to allow them to grow it or smoke it in your house? No, you do not. That is an unreasonable accommodation. You're allowed to say no smoking of any kind in the house. Now, can you say you cannot store any marijuana of any kind in the unit? Probably not. If they have CBD oil or edibles that they need to store for their personal use, that's fine. But what about growing? You know, they say, oh, well, I can't afford that, so I have to grow my own plants. And let's say growing requires an additional requirements for ventilation, which might mean you have to upgrade your electrical service, which might mean the place smells and you have to repaint it afterwards from the growing. You don't have to make that accommodation. That's an unreasonable accommodation to ask the landlord to make. Does that make sense? Okay. So the American Disabilities Act requires you to make reasonable accommodations. So you're going to have to have a judgment call on what is reasonable, what is unreasonable. Okay. If someone says, I want I'm a wheelchair and I want to build a temporary wooden ramp in the front of the house that I'll remove when I leave, do you have to allow that? Yeah, that's not unreasonable because they can remove it. If they say, well, I can't get my wheelchair through the house, so you have to widen all the doorways. No, that is unreasonable. That's an unreasonable request because it's going to cost you an arm and a leg to do that. You have to check, fundamentally change this, the house in order to accommodate a wheelchair. So you may want to do it, you know, be nice, but uh, you don't have to do it. Next, environmental liabilities. So we got all kinds of environmental issues, mold, lead, radon, asbestos, secondhand smoke, uh, mess labs. Let's go through them one by one. Mold, um, that falls generally under latent defects. If you didn't know about it, or you, sh you should have known about it or, and didn't do anything. If, if you knew about it and didn't do anything, if you should have known and didn't do anything, you could be liable. If you didn't know and didn't have any reasonable belief that there was mold in the house, um, then you're off the hook. But once a tenant says something and says, you know, my kid just got back from the doctor and, the, you know, the kid has asthma and they think it's irritated by mold uh, spores they found in a test, you should go test the house professionally and remediate it. Um, if there was a flood or there was um, bad um, leaking water around the surround of a tub that leaked and leaked and leaked into the walls and created mold, you know, you should open that up and make sure it's remediated. Lead. We have specific rules the EPA has about lead. And, you know, if a house is pre-78, you have to fill out a disclosure form. Uh, you can find it on epa.gov, and you're supposed to give them that pamphlet that says um, all about lead in your home, I think is the name of the pamphlet. You can download it as a PDF. But what if you disturb, if it's pre-78, and you disturb potential lead paint? Well, you may have to test first, especially around, around windows. If you're removing windows or changing out window sills or scra scraping and painting around windows in old buildings, you could be pretty sure that there's lead paint in there somewhere under those seven coats of paint. So test and make sure it's done right. Radon, personally, I think is a crock. But still, you know, it's something that people test for. I don't 
know that many landlords that test for radon, and I don't know this, that the medical science is that convincing that radon is bad for you, at least at low levels. Um, but do you want to test that before you buy it? Probably. Should you test every year? I don't know if that's necessary. I'll leave that up to you. Um, you know, if the house has a history, maybe it has been remediated and has a uh, venting system, then you're on notice that the house has radon levels in it and it was remediated um, with a device and you should check that often. Asbestos, um, if it's a 1950s house with that old black tile on the floor, a white tile, you can be pretty sure there's asbestos in that tile. Now, as long as you don't disturb it, you're generally okay. Um, if you put carpet over it, you're probably fine. You might want to disclose that, but you're probably fine. If you rip it up, now you're in trouble because you have to get an, um, a, um, a special permit to remove asbestos, and you have to have someone who's qualified to remove it properly and dispose of it properly, especially up in the attic if you do any work or stuff like that. Okay? Uh, secondhand smoke. You know, I, I don't know too many landlords that allow smoking at all inside. But if you're aware in a multi-unit that people are smoking and smoking in gathering areas, like, like you see it in office buildings a lot where they say no smoking, so they go right outside the door in the middle of the winter and they gather 12 of them and they smoke, and everybody who has to walk in and out of the building gets a whiff of it. Um, you know, it's like these people smoke in their car with their kids in the car. You know, it's crazy. I'd be... Uh, I'd be diligent about making sure that not only there's no smoking, that you enforce it and make sure and put signs outside the, if you have a big building, put signs outside the doorways that say no smoking within 20 feet or 30 feet of this building. And finally, a previous meth lab. Um, you know, how do you know? Do you have to test every house for it? or every every tenant every time a tenant turns over do you have to test for it not unless you're on notice you know i don't think it's reasonable for a landlord to be on notice or you know should think that there's meth unless there's a neighbor who complains there's a police report or something like that then you have to go test for it and possibly remediate moving right along animals and pets some people equate those with bad tenants but I'm talking about real animals and pets. Uh, you can't exclude or charge more or charge a pet fee for a service animal. So if it's a legitimate service animal, you got to let them have it, unless it's an unreasonable accommodation. Okay? So I had a situation where a client called me up and says, I got a guy who's, you know, I'm renting a one-bedroom condo, and the guy's got two 120-pound Rottweilers, and he says they're service dogs. <laughs> and I just laughed and said, what service? <laughs> I said, was he in a wheelchair? And he says, no. I said, did he look like he needed a dog? Two Rottweilers? No. I said, then ask him. You're allowed to ask. That's not a violation of the law for you to ask. What is your disability? Why do you need and prove that they're a real service animal? Now, if they just came back from Iraq and they have PTSD, and they want to have two Rottweilers, and the HOA in the condo rules say no dogs over 30 pounds. Can you bounce them? And the answer is yes, because it's an unreasonable accommodation to expect you to violate the HOA rules. And besides, 
it's really kind of mean to have 220 pound Rottweilers in a one bedroom condo. They should be in a house outside. It turned out the guy didn't was, was he didn't have anything, so he couldn't prove it. He threatened to sue, but everybody has a lawyer. Isn't that interesting? All tenants have lawyers. They can't pay their rent, but they all can afford lawyers. Um, dogs, there's the one bite rule. That means once an animal bites somebody, neighbor, guest, whoever, you're on notice of a propensity of that dog or a- other animal to be uh, vicious. So you have to report it to the local sheriff. That's the law. Uh, and you should tell them to get rid of it. And you should put that in your lease, too, that you have, you know, if, if you allow dogs, um, that a particular dog, that you, you, know, you can charge a pet fee as long as it's not a service animal. You can charge a, a, a pet deposit or an extra rent and put in the agreement that once they attack somebody or bite someone, they're, they're gone. They're gone. So there's no argument later about, you, you know, why I have to get rid of the family dog. Now, certain, what about like Rottweilers uh, or even worse, pit bulls? Now, I read, uh, there's a website that keeps statistics on all this stuff, and they said 60% of dog bite fatalities are from pit bulls. So, you know, I know people are always going to tell me, I have a pit bull, and it's the sweetest thing in the world. That's great, but statistically, 60% of dog bite fatalities are pit bulls. You should not allow pit bulls. And in some jurisdictions, they're illegal anyway. Like in the city of Aurora, where my brails are, it's illegal to have a pit bull. So you could bounce them on that. Or you can say, look, I don't want the risk of a, a, of a pit bull. Unless they're a service animal, now, we're, now we have a judgment call. Do we allow a service pit bull? And the city code says you can't have a pit bull? On that one, I'd go with the city code. I'd bounce them on the city code. If there was no city code, that's a tough call because if you have a multi-unit especially, I'd be really worried about having uh, people with pit bulls that might bite a neighbor's kid and you know, get you into trouble. Uh, with exotic animals, there's a no-bite rule. So if they want to keep a chimpanzee, an orangutan, you know, a snake or whatever, you know, good luck. One bite and you're liable. You don't have, I mean, you don't have to have one bite to be unnoticed. All right, so... That's all I want to say about pets. And then we'll talk about pests and uh, other than the tenants, <laughs> pests, uh, roaches, bed bugs, mice, rats, wild animals. Um, it's a tough one, especially with multi-units. If you've got a fourplex and one person's a slob and they got roaches, you know what happens. You spray the one unit and they scatter to the other units. You've got to bomb the whole building, and you've got to take everyone out for two days and, you know, until it's cleared. Uh, bed bugs. This is a tough one. It comes up a lot. If there were no bed bugs when you came in, and all of a sudden a tenant moves in and there's bed bugs, uh, I would say lean towards, because that's a habitability issue, I would lean towards paying to remediate because it's possible your previous tenant left the bed bugs. But if the tenant's been there for a year and all of a sudden there's bed bugs and he just happened to have bought a new mattress used off a of Craigslist, I would say no. I would say that's your responsibility. There's no way they're going to prove that the bed bugs were there and they just came out a year later. Okay? But – at least, you know, in some states and localities, bed bugs are the responsibility of the landlord. So it's, it's a judgment call you have to make there. 
Uh, same thing with mice and rats. Um, and we talked earlier about wild animals. Um, you know, I would recommend to your uh, tenants if you're in a, an area where there's bears that they keep the garbage in the garage or keep the lids locked up in a big, you know, give them big garbage cans with lids closed, you know, with a bungee cord so they don't get, uh, or if you have a, um, an apartment building, build a surround that locks and closes so bears can't get in it. Because once the bears run out of food there, guess where they start going? Next one. We have two left. Uh, ba- a bad lease. A bad lease. So um, we spent a lot of time talking about leases, but let me quickly talk about some of the highlights of things you want in your lease. Uh, late fees. Uh, they are limited by state law in some states and some localities, so know what they are. But generally speaking, um, you don't want to gouge people, but you should have a late fee after a certain day of the month. That's a flat fee plus a per diem. Otherwise, if you just have a flat fee, then why should they pay on the 8th when they could pay on the 30th? It's the same late fee, right? Bounce checks, state law does regulate what you can ding them for, and it, and it can't be more than the actual bank charge. So you can't charge them $100 for a bounce check when your bank charges you 12 um, Attorney's fee clauses. This is interesting. Almost every landlord puts something in there that says, if we sue and we win, we get attorney's fees. Well, implied in most states, implied in that is a reciprocal right, even though it doesn't say the tenant can get it. Usually says the landlord can get it. Implied in most states is a reciprocal right of the tenant to get attorney's fees if they win, okay? Or if your lease just says the winner gets attorney's fees, um, the tenant can get attorney's fees. Well, if you've got a um, a low-income tenant, like a Section 8 tenant, and they get a, uh, a free lawyer from uh, legal aid, and you lose, you're going to pay their attorney's fees. But if you sue and you win, what's the odds you're going to collect anything? So if you're dealing in properties like that with tenants like that, and you know they have access to local legal aid lawyers for free, I would take the attorney fee clause winning out of it because it only will work against you. It can't work for you because you can't collect from someone who's broke. But if they get attorney's fees, you got to pay them. Interesting theory there. A lot of people put attorney's fee clauses in there. I advise sometimes to take them out, depending on the situation. Okay. Um, That's all I want to say about contract clauses right now. There's so much we could say about that. We'll save it for another discussion. But going on to the other area, which is criminal activity. Uh, Liability for failing to regulate criminal activity in a multi-unit. Um. If you know there's drug dealing going on, if you know there's criminal activity, prostitution, whatever, if someone gets injured, you could be held liable for allowing it to go on, okay? Um, Failing to deal with the activity of other tenants. So if one tenant assaults another tenant, you should bounce the assaulting tenant, the assaulter. Get rid of them. You should have something in your lease that says if you are are convicted uh, of the following or uh, any, you know, class of felony, then we have a right to evict you. And then just a, um, you know, as a general thing, you know, you want to make sure that obviously that you're not holding properties in your own personal name for liability. I mean, insurance will cover a lot of it, but insurance doesn't cover everything as we discussed having 
uh, a layer of entities, maybe trust, land trust with an LLC, or at least an LLC, so you're protecting yourself or limiting your liability in case insurance doesn't cover the claim. That's a whole nother bowl of wax. We'll do in another call. But um, just uh, if you are doing properties in your own name, think about not doing it. And think about a property manager, too, because that creates another layer of separation. Because even if you have an LLC and you're the manager of the LLC, if you physically repaired a deck that collapsed and the tenant was injured, they could sue your LLC. But they could also sue you because you're the person who did it. That doesn't protect you. But if you have an LLC and you hire a property manager and the property manager's negligent, well, they'll sue the property manager and they'll sue your LLC, but they can't sue you because you didn't do the act. That is a good reason to have a property manager, not to mention the fact that your time is worth a lot more uh, than dealing with uh, tenants, toilets, and you know calls in the middle of the night. All right? So... Um, I kind of scratched the surface on some of this stuff, but I just wanted to give you the highlights of maybe what you don't know that you don't know to think about as a landlord and remedy in dealing with your rental properties. Okay. Questions? I have a question. Mm-hmm. This is This is Renee. Um, about security deposits and returning in this in this COVID environment. Mm. So the law says that the itemization, and I, I can't remember if it says and or the security deposit funds, whatever, needs to be mm-hmm. sent by U.S. mail within that 60-day yes. period. Okay. Yes. Not interesting. You don't know where that. they move to, right? Right. Well, so I'm wondering um, – I've had a couple get, you know, I, I usually send a signed returned receipt, certified mail, and they've been, they've, it's been returned. And they usually don't pick it up. Tenants, Most people don't pick up certified yeah, they mail because they know up. it's bad news. Yeah, they don't pick it up, and then it gets returned, and it's just kind of a mess. And then they said, well, why can't you just send us the, uh, the money via Venmo or Zelle or or right. PayPal, and then email the itemization. Follow Is the that, statute. Follow the statute. That no matter what, it still needs to be sent by U.S. mail. Yeah, and whenever, whenever I send mail, I send regular and certified, because most people don't, don't sign for certified because they know it's bad news. Right. Is regular you know, and certified. Now, is it okay that, to also email it? Yes. Is it okay to return it by Venmo? Yes. But follow the statute as to the mailing of the notice that's required that way. Okay. Um, along that line, we said send it regular mail. You can also send it if you go up to the counter at the post office and you tell them you want to have a certificate of certificate mailing. Certificate of mailing, right. Yes. Right, which is different than the certified mailing, and that's I think about twenty or something. You but, don't need to because in the in the law in court, a letter mailed is presumed received. They have to prove they didn't get it. Which how do you prove? How do you prove a negative like that? Right. You can't. Right. You can't. But did you, you say, say that you my can... mailbox? Unless you have a police report that says your mailbox was broken into. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so right. So I would mail so it. Follow the statute. Of, 
recap. So the itemization mm-hmm. should be sent U.S. mail, but I can send them the funds uh, some way, somewhere else other than a check. Does the statute say you have to return it and buy a check through the mail? Well, I don't it doesn't think it say. Does. I, I don't think doesn't it says a check. It says that the itemization. I haven't looked at the, the statute. Right. You could you could send them an, an itemization by mail and email and then say, I mailed you this and I'm emailing you a copy and I'm returning you half. And the reason is because of the attached letter, which I also mailed to you. And then I'm going to Venmo you. That's fine. Okay. That's okay, fine. As long as as long as we have one that goes through the mail system. Right. Yeah, okay. unfortunately, a lot of the statutes like that are, are dated, you know. Like, what does a writing mean? Well, courts have interpreted text to be writing, emails to be writing. But when they say writing and signed, well, then that's a physical document that is executed. What about electronic execution? Is that an execution? Well, a lot of states have passed laws that say electronic signatures are the same as signatures for the purposes of every law in the code. That's good. But it gets fuzzy. You know, when there's strict rules like that that say when someone demands their security deposit and you don't itemize or you don't return it within a certain time period, otherwise they get treble damages in court, you don't want to screw around with, you know, semantics. Like they got the email and they responded. A judge might be a, you know, a jerk about it and say, well, the statute says mail this. You didn't uh, mail it. Okay. What is Colorado about signatures? Uh, you know, like I do a lot electronic. of electronic. Electronic is okay. Is fine. Okay. Yeah, electronic. We have like an electronic act that says that electronic signatures are the same as long as they follow a certain protocol. And I don't, I'm not a sophisticated enough on an IT level to tell you what that is, but there's some sort of IT certification, like Adobe Sign and, and other things like that, that are considered verified signatures. What about notarizing things? Have they, you know, I've heard um, some places you know, you know, they're wanting to use yeah, notarizing. There's an, electronic, there's an electronic notary act in Colorado um, that allows you to witness over the Internet, like over a Zoom, and stamp it after the fact. There's also... Um, e-notarized websites. I forgot the, I think it's notarized.com, but they charge an enormous amount of money to e-notarize something like you upload a document and then they electronically notarize it. It's like $85. I mean, it's insane. It's insane. You can go to 123notary.com and find a mobile notary who will show up at your house for half of that and notarize something. I know in Colorado in particular, um, you have to apply to become an e-notary. It's, sm- it's a small process and a small fee. But it's not a big deal. Um, I know the governor signed an order that says we're suspending that requirement during COVID. So if you're a regular notary, you can e-notarize as well. Oh, okay. And if you want the specifics on how to do it and how, just go to the Secretary of State website. They have a whole thing about it. You know, how do you do it? How, you know, what's the requirements and so forth. 
and check out notarize.com. You know, they, they, and there's one other website I can't remember the name of that'll like notarize a deed electronically for you. I've done closings by Zoom. You know, what I did is I just said, okay, everybody, sign the document in front of me. <laughs> Take a copy of your driver's license and send it back to me with the original document you notarized, and I will stamp it. So I'm doing it the old-fashioned way, but I'm doing it through electronic means of the witnessing. They didn't physically do it in front of me. They did it through Zoom, but that's okay. All right, interesting. Um Yeah, you can witness over, have... Zo over, over Zoom and then stamp it when they mail it back to you. You're allowed to do that under the Notary Act, E-Notary Act. Okay. Yep. Good questions, though. Excellent questions. Thank you. All right, who else? Anything on the uh, issues I've covered or any other legal-related landlord issues? Carter, um, if I had some work done over 600 and I forgot, unfortunately, to get the W-9, uh, what can I do? What well, the fine from the IRS is I think, I think it's $100 per form. The question is, and then becomes how will the IRS ever know to – this happened to find you. So you have two choices. You could leave, let sleeping dogs lie as a practical matter, and the IRS is not going to find out about it, you know, probably 99.9% .9 of the cases. Or you can fill out a blank one with their name and address and mail it to them and leave it blank and send a copy to the IRS. Then they're going to send you something back saying, where is the tax ID number? And then you're going to mail them back and say, I don't have it. <laughs> so do you want to deal with the consequences of number two or the consequences of number one? I think the odds are on number one. If you didn't do it, I wouldn't worry about it. But don't make a practice of it. Like if you if you had 100 contractors you paid and you didn't send any 1099s, you know, the IRS catches on, then they're going to audit you and say, ah, here's 100 other ones you didn't do. That's $10,000 fine. Yeah, this was just the one case, so – yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't lose sleep over it. You don't go to jail okay. over it. It's a hundred dollar fine if the IRS finds out. Okay, but uh, I will remember in the future. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Can they disqualify I... that write-off? No, they can't disqualify the write-off, um, but they can um, fine you for not filing the form. Because you send 1099s to your contractors, and you send a copy of those with, a, I think it's a 1096 form, which is the summary of all of them. I don't remember. Um, you can get that pack at Office Depot, you know, that has like all the 1099 forms and then the, the, the form that you send to the IRS. I, I'm pretty sure it's 1096 that has a summary of all the ones you sent and you copies of all the 1099s. Now, isn't there some type of rule that you correctly, have to pay some of their tax or something if you're responsible for well I don't know here's the thing if you if you paid someone as an independent contractor and they didn't pay their withholding 
right? Their, their income taxes. The State Department of Revenue is going to come to you and try to pin that, them on you as an employee and make you pay the unpaid withholding. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, that doesn't but mean they, they're, they're be successful at that, but they'll try. Yeah. Yeah, if they're a contractor, and they're not working for you year-round, and they don't – it's an odd right. job. If they're a company they out of the Yellow that? Pages – yeah, if they're a company out of the Yellow Pages, right, and you just forgot to give them a 1099 and they audit you, um, you know, they're going to have a hard time pinning that person on you as an employee and making you pay for their unpaid taxes. But if it's like the yeah. scenario I described, you know, where someone's doing work in exchange for rent or constant work for you where you're paying them by the hour – they're going to try to pin them on you as an employer and then say you should have withheld, pay it, plus penalties, and uh, your half um, of the of the FICA tax, you owe that too, plus penalties. Yeah. They're, I mean, if they weren't working for you for any length of time, is they, do they have any chance of winning that argument? You know, they could be a seasonal employee, could be a part-time employee, they could be a temporary employee. I mean, it, it, there's a series of factors, like did they work their hours or your hours? Did you pay them by the hour or did you pay them by the job? Did you supervise? Did they use their tools or your tools? Did you buy materials or did they provide them? You know what I mean? There's like a checklist, yeah. and then it's sort of like we know it when we see it. Yep, got it. Okay. Um, I have a separate question. I uh, wanted to get your yeah, thoughts sure. on – putting your personal residence in an LLC, writing it back to yourself, basically mm-hmm. have it, having it as a rental uh, for tax purposes, for cost seg, et cetera. You mean you're renting out part of your house? No, taking your personal residence and putting it in your, your rental LLC for And then for the paying write-off. rent to your, for your own LLC? Yeah. Well, you're going to lose the exclusion from capital gains when you go to sell it then. Yeah, I'm, I'm okay with that. You're okay with the two fifty losing $250,000 in capital gains exclusion? Well, <laughs> if I, if I, and then I, yeah. I have a unique situation, but, um, I, the answer is you can do that. You can have your LLC own your home. You could pay rent as a tenant to your LLC and, you will get a if it's a more expensive home, get a bigger deduction because remember, as a principal residence, the mortgage interest on Schedule A is limited to ten thousand a year for for taxes and insurance. Yeah. If your annual nut for that is a hundred grand, yeah, it might be better to rent from yourself from your own entity and lose the the capital gains exclusion. Yeah, I'm looking at the I'm looking at the bonus depreciation that I can take on and it. And the depreciation, I'm all, right? I'm looking at all the little things I can write off. And then if I do right. decide to sell it, you know, and it's not a last-minute thing, I could always quick claim it back to my name. If it's a two out of the last five years that it was in my True. name. You can, convert, you you can convert it back to a principal residence for two, two years out of five and then, and then sell it. Yeah. I'm developing – I'm putting three, three more units on my lot. And so it's like, yeah. you know, I'm you should, to put the whole thing under yeah, LLC. Yeah, you should, but make sure it's market rent you're paying to your, to your LLC because you can't pay your, yeah. your LLC $500 and then lose, you know, 2000 a month and then write that off. Yeah, yeah it's, it's going to be somewhat reasonable. Yeah, it's got to be fair market rent. Okay, got it. Yeah, looking at doing that, so I wanted to just see what you thought. Yeah. Cool. Good. It's a question. All good questions. Another, que- Another question. 
True. Emotional support, emotional support animals, not service yeah. animals, because service animals mm-hmm. you have to consider that they are an extension of a human right. being. Right. But emotional support animals. Is it a reasonable accommodation? Okay. Can you? Okay. Here's my press. I guess I want to know if you what can, I'm doing. You is can ask for it. proof. You can ask for proof. Serve, there's a standard for service animals. You can't, you can't just say, "Well, I'm a, I'm a person with anxiety without my chihuahua." You can't do that. You have to have like you know a designation from a psychiatrist that says you've got an illness of some kind, and this dog helps you overcome that illness. All right, so what I've been doing is I've been been asking that I said emotional support animals are okay, but I need a letter from um, a physician, therapist, uh, within the last year that says that this is a prescribed situation. That's reasonable to ask for. That's reasonable to ask for. And I tell them, and I don't want to know what the disability is or whatever whatever they're Mm -hmm. treating, because one year I got a letter it was a two-page letter on the psychological problems this this tenant was uh, having. You don't want and that. it was like, you oh my god, <laughs> I don't want to know. TMI, TMI, don't tell me that. <laughs> you read it and said, I don't want to rent to this person. They're insane. Um, yeah, exactly. No. I mean, yeah. you know, maybe yeah, you me, it, it, look at them okay differently. Like I said earlier, it's okay to ask for, um, for any kind of service animal or an emotional support animal you know, for a, for a doctor's note or certification or whatever it is that they, you know, proof of the, of the disability or the emotional support requirement, you know, from a doctor. Yeah, that's okay. So I understand that you can't ask for proof that it's a service animal. Is that correct? I'm not aware of any law of that, of, of such. Okay, usually when if I... You have when a dog, somebody... If you have a policy that says no dogs... And they say, well, I need this for emotional support. Is that a reasonable accommodation that you are, have to make for the dog? Well, it depends. You know, if, like I said, the guy with the two Rottweilers, it turned out to be emotional support animals. It's not a reasonable accommodation for, to ask for someone to have 220-pound dogs and a one-bedroom condo, and the condo rules say no dogs more than 30 pounds. It was okay for my client to bounce them on that. Say no. That's, you're asking for an unreasonable accommodation. Same thing. If it was an emotional support animal, and they said, and it, and it was a, it was a, uh, a pit bull. <laughs> hmm, okay. And you have, and you have tenants in the build, in the rest of the building that have children. You want to take that risk? I see what you Especially mean. Especially if, if the city says no pit bulls. With the um, um, just kind of shifting over to the service animals. So um, I, I thought I'd heard or read somewhere that you're not allowed to ask if the service animal has papers or proof that it is a service animal. And I, you know, I don't know about that, but I, I have noticed that, that if it is a real service animal, then when I ask the question, when they say, I have a service animal, and I ask the question, and what does this service animal do? What function does it provide? Mm-hmm. If it's a real service well, you, you dog, they will say. You're, you're not, okay, a, a place of public accommodation cannot ask for proof the animal has been certified, trained, or licensed as a service animal. 
But if oh, they're so, going so to a live... public accommodation, in, not a private residence, then. I can ask well, for proof. Let me give you a... Uh, let's see. I'm looking it up real quick under the ADA. Okay. Usually I find if someone, if it's a real so service they can animal. Ask, okay, this is according to, this is a government website. This is the .gov website. It says that they can ask for proof that the service animal is prescribed by a medical professional. Okay. Okay. Um, under Fair Housing Act, This is public accommodation I'm talking about. If you rent four units or less and they live in one of the units, they do not, landlords do not need to provide unreasonable accommodations. Even for a service animal. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's according to this, this is a .gov website I'm looking at that says, but there may be state regulations you have to be aware of because, you know, this is the American right, with that, Disability Act. the ADA. Act. The ADA is the federal one, says you don't, as in less than four, in four units or less, you don't have to provide uh, uh, accommodations. But... Uh, No, it says, that's, I'm just reading here. It says, if it's a four-unit building and you live in one and rent the other two, you don't have to provide the accommodation. You do have to provide the accommodation in a single-family home. Okay. As long as it is a reasonable accommodation. So it goes back to what's a reasonable accommodation. Okay? Right, but I can um, ask, but I can ask if, for some sort of documentation if they're a service you, animal. I can or I cannot ask. Let me let me read this here. You can't ask, inquire about the specific disability or diagnosis, because because of HIPAA. But you right, are, right. are allowed to ask uh, for a for uh, a prescription from a doctor. I can ask that. Okay. Yes. Okay. And you can ask for proof that the service animal has been prescribed by a medical professional and that the, the animal is uh, certified as such. But in cases of public accommodation, that's different. So like a restaurant or a store, if they walk in, you can say, let me see your papers. You can't do that. All right, fair enough. Like I said, normally if someone, if it's a real service animal, the person who owns the service animal will be very specific as to the function of the of the service animal. They will say, uh, oh, yes, this dog is trained. I wouldn't get too far into that. Just as long as you say, just get a letter. Just get a letter. Now, again, what what if it's a, a Rottweiler, not a Rottweiler, a pit bull, and then the city says no pit bulls are allowed? What if it's a half a pit bull? 
<laughs> I don't have an easy answer to that question. Look, if they have PTSD and they served in the military, give them the benefit of the doubt. Free articles and videos. Visit his website at www.legalwiz.com.